Shall we pray as we come to God's word now? Heavenly Father, thank you that as we gather together this morning, you want to speak to us by your Spirit. Father, would these words that we have just read minister to us now, wherever we are, whatever this week has held. Father, where we need to be challenged, would you challenge us? And Lord, where we need your comfort, would you bring your comfort, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Why on earth did you think that giving me that fruit was a good idea? Why did you listen to the words of that snake? That's rich. You were there the entire time, and I didn't hear you say a word. I might have given you the fruit, but I didn't force you to eat it, did I? Well, now what do we do? Sooner or later, God's going to find out what we've done. We both know what he said that would mean. Uh, grab those fig leaves, uh, we should probably hide ourselves, and then hide somewhere in the garden so that he doesn't find out what we've done. The aftermath of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 uh, must have been awful. To have gone from enjoying the freedom, the beauty, and the peace of the good creation that God had given Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 to living in a world that was cursed and full of shame in Genesis 3. And what's worse, to know that you had gone from a world where everything was good and right to knowing that you were responsible for breaking it all. No wonder we're told Adam and Eve tried hiding when they heard God walking in the cool of the day. And yet when you think about it, hiding from God, it's not the best of plans. I mean, did Adam and Eve really think hiding in the trees of the garden from the God who had created all things with just a word, would work? Uh, did they think that if they had just hid for long enough, God would forget what they'd done? Did they then think that shifting the blame from one person to the next would be an effective defence before the God who could see their every thought and motive? As we come to the first half of Psalm 139 this morning and the second half next week, we're, we're going to read some incredible words that will allude back to that incredible creation story of Genesis 1 to 3. Psalm 139 has so much to tell us about the attributes of the character, attributes of the God that we follow and his character. But it is also a psalm that has so much to tell us about what it means to be a human, to live as a human in this beautiful and broken world. And as we dwell on the powerful and holy character of God that King David describes here, and as we think about how we have lived in this world that we have been placed in, I think Psalm 139 will likely bring up similar feelings to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. These are beautiful words, and yet I think they're going to provoke in many of us feelings of shame and condemnation, a desire to run or to hide, fearfully wanting to hold God at a distance, because to come into his presence would be an uncomfortable thing to do. And yet the incredible thing about this psalm, the, the reason that these verses are so beautiful, why so many people have them up on their walls, is because if our relationship with God has been restored, 
if we have accepted the offer of love and reconciliation that Jesus offers in the gospel, then these verses describe how we can run safely and joyously into the arms of our Heavenly Father. Instead of bringing condemnation, these beautiful verses can bring us comfort. Instead of bringing fear, they can bring freedom. Instead of causing us to weep, they can lead us to worship. Because they are verses that remind us of the tender, gracious love of our Heavenly Father for us. Two points this morning. Point one, the God who knows me fully. When I first started as a history teacher, I was very conscious of the fact that there was so much that I did not know. Studying history certainly didn't mean that I knew all of history. And so when I began teaching and had to teach periods of history I had little knowledge of, I had a real case of imposter syndrome. If you started a new job recently, you'll know the feeling, but standing up in front of a classroom of 30 pupils it certainly raised the stakes. I was the teacher. I was the one supposed to be dispensing knowledge in the room, and yet for a long time I lived in perpetual fear that my lack of knowledge was going to be exposed by the inquisitive question of an 11-year-old. But the scriptures, on the other hand, are so clear that the Lord, he knows all things. He knows all that is past and all that is to come. He knows all of time and all of space. Uh, The philosophical term for this is God's omniscience. It means God knows everything. Or to put it in the opposite way, it means that there is nothing that the Lord can be taught. He has no need for a quick Google search. He doesn't need to attend a training course or complete enough CPD hours. He doesn't wrestle with imposter syndrome because he knows all things. And that's really important, isn't it? Because no one wants to follow a God who only knows some things. God would not be worthy of our worship if he could be surprised or deceived like we can be. One of the very reasons he's worthy of our worship is because he knows all things. And so as we come to the first six verses of this psalm, we can see how King David takes this whopper of a theological truth, and yet he expresses it poetically, personally, and intimately. Because there's a real danger, isn't there, that we hear, God knows all things. He cannot be taught anything, and so then we jump to the conclusion that he must be distant or impersonal. That with all the information he possesses, all of the data, we're just another piece of data on his heavenly spreadsheet, another brief blip in the span of eternity. And yet as we read verse 1 to 6 now, just, just notice the tone that David writes with. Look down with me. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. 
Six verses that simply tell us God knows. Yes, he knows all of creation. He knows all of history, past, present, and future. But verse 1, King David writes, God knows me. He knows me. He knows us better than any friend or family member. In fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. Verse 2, he knows when we will sit down for our morning coffee, and he knows when we will get up again. Uh, He knows what is occupying our thoughts this morning, and he sees what we daydream about. Verse 3, he knows what each day will hold, and he knows when our heads will hit the pillow. A human being speaks an average of 7,000 words each day. And verse 4, the Lord knows each word that will come out of our mouths before it's even reached our tongue. Verse 5, the Lord hems us in behind and before. He knew when we would take our first breath and he knows when we shall breathe our last because not a single day is outside of his hands. Uh, The Lord's knowledge is so broad, so deep, so intimate that David can only respond in verse 6 that this is a knowledge that he can't even comprehend. It is a knowledge too wonderful, too lofty for him to attain. But if God knows, then that means God knows. It means he knew everything about Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. It means that God knew David's every lustful thought as he committed adultery with Bathsheba, another man's wife, Uh, that he knew every murderous intent as David succeeded in having her husband, Uriah, murdered. It means that God knows you, that he knows me, inside and out. Everything we've ever said, thought, done, our inner thoughts, our browsing history, our motives, everything about us. And so maybe the fact that God knows this morning is not a comfort to you. Maybe it's crushing. Why would God want anything to do with me if he knew the real me? Why would he want to know me if he knew everything that I've ever done? I wouldn't have a friend in the world if they could hear my thoughts. And and if he knows the thoughts that don't even reach my tongue, then he knows how dark a place my heart can be. If God knows me, there's no way that he wants me to know him. And yet this is the scandalous good news of the gospel. The late Tim Keller wrote this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. This morning, God isn't offering you the hollow, superficial love of a fan in a stadium, screaming their love to their favorite celebrity. And no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you think it might be, if you come to him, he will not reject you. He is the only one who knows us completely, and yet, 
he knows us and still loves us enough to send his one and only son to die for us so that we might spend eternity enjoying his love instead of facing judgment for the wrongs that we have committed. Because the Bible is clear that that day of judgment is coming. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. One day God will judge each person based on what he knows about them. Adam and Eve, King David, you and I, and everyone else in all of human history will stand before the throne of God and have to give an account before the Lord for how they have lived their life and then await his verdict. And the only reason that we can gather together this morning and take comfort from these verses rather than be utterly crushed by them is because of the gospel. Because for everyone who has put their trust in Jesus, God promises to judge them based on his knowledge about how Jesus lived rather than to judge us based on his knowledge about how we have lived. Jesus who took our sin and wrongdoing and was punished at the cross in our place, dying so that we might receive his goodness, so that we might go free. That is an offer that stands today for anyone who comes to him and says, Lord, I need Jesus. If, if you were to judge me based on your knowledge about me, I would stand condemned. So please judge Jesus in my place. Judge me according to what you know about him instead. And for all who have made that decision, Instead of reading verse 1 to 6 and being condemned, instead of reading 1 to 6 and trying to hide like Adam and Eve did in the garden, anyone who is trusting in the Lord Jesus this morning can read these verses and take comfort. We can read them and say joyously, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know everything about me and yet you still love me enough to rescue me from my mess. You still love me enough to save me from your judgment by sending Jesus to die for me. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that when you search and know me now, Lord, you see me as your perfect son, Jesus. That is why these verses for the Christian this morning are beautiful comfort. Point two, the God who is always with me. In verses 7 to 12, we read that no matter where David goes, he cannot go anywhere that God is not. David moves from speaking of God's knowledge, his omniscience in verse 1 to 6, to speaking of his omnipresence in verse 7 to 12. Look with me at those verses again. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you were there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night 
around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Jailbreak is a university charity event where university students are challenged to get as far away from jail, their university campus, as possible in 36 hours without spending any of their own money. Uh, whoever is furthest away from jail in 36 hours wins. And winners' tactics have differed over the years. Hitchhiking in a car, very popular option. Uh, but most jailbreak winners have been those who have managed to blag their way onto a plane. Uh, one of the most famous success stories in jailbreak history uh, comes from the Durham team in 2010 who managed to successfully send enough emails to enough email accounts that they managed to successfully guess billionaire Richard Branson's personal email. Uh, they emailed explaining who they were, what their aim was, that it was all for charity, and, and very shortly they received a reply from Branson's PA, which simply read, Richard would like to know if Sydney is far enough. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The university students involved in jailbreak, they, they might have been able to put significant distance between themselves and their campus. But verse 7 shows us that no matter where David goes, no matter what method of transport he is to use, he cannot put any distance between him and God's presence. David thinks vertically and horizontally, verse 8, if I make my way up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Okay, up and down doesn't do it. How about east or west, verse 9 and 10? If I rise on the wings of the dawn, settle on the far side of the sea, am I out of range of your spirit? No, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. No matter where David goes, no matter where you or I find ourselves by choice or by circumstance this week, even there the Lord can be found. Even there he is with us. Whatever this week holds, whether you find yourself traveling for work or alone at home, surrounded by Christians or being the only Christian that you know, the Lord goes with you by his spirit. And don't these verses just highlight the ridiculousness of trying to run from God? Adam and Eve in the garden, the prophet Jonah comes to mind, trying to run from God's call as he goes to Nineveh. Or, or you and me, trying to run from God because we're ashamed about our sin. There is no place that we can go where God cannot find us or be found. And so in verse 11, David considers the darkness. Maybe he can't outrun the Lord. And maybe he can't put any physical distance between him and the Lord. But what if he's to wrap himself in darkness like a duvet? What if he hides somewhere so dark, even the light around him becomes night? Verse 12, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness 
is as light to you. There is no darkness in this life, no dark thing that you can have been involved in or done where God cannot bring his light. No matter how far you've run, no matter for how long, no matter what sin you've been involved in, no matter how desperate you might feel, there is no darkness that God cannot take and disperse or transform. John's Gospel says that Jesus is the light of the world. And we read that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness shall not overcome it. My grandparents were missionaries in Kenya for decades and my granddad would often send me missionary biographies to read, I think because he wanted me to become a missionary. Some of his favourites were written by a missionary called Don Richardson, uh, with one in particular called Peace Child standing out more than the rest to me because of how clearly Jesus' light shined in darkness. Don and his wife Carol, uh, they risked their lives to reach the Sawi people in Papua New Guinea with the good news of the gospel. But this was a difficult tribe to reach for, for several reasons. One was that this was a war-torn territory. Several of the tribes had been at war for as long as anyone could remember. And the other was that these tribes, they were known cannibals. But actually, the factor that made the gospel most difficult to share with the Sawi people was that their culture had become so dark that they valued treachery as the highest moral value. This became clear when Don shared some stories from the Bible and he got to the New Testament and shared stories about Jesus. And yet as the Sawi people heard these stories, they celebrated Judas as the hero of the story. In Sawi culture, the highest possible moral virtue is the act of befriending someone, killing them, and then eating them. So Judas's betrayal of Jesus, this was seen as the true example to follow. Don and his wife, having shared this and seen the response, were left in despair. How can we reach this group of people who are in such darkness? And eventually, due to the fighting between the tribes, the area they lived in became too dangerous for them to stay. So Don announced to the Sawi that until peace came to the area, uh, him and Carol were going to have to leave, taking their young child with them. And not wanting Don to leave them, uh, the warring Sawi tribes came together and performed what was known as a peace child ceremony. Each village exchanged one baby from their own tribe for another baby from the other tribe. Those babies that were exchanged were known as the peace child. And as long as those two children were alive, there would be peace between those two tribes. And so Don and Carol listened to this, saw this ceremony, and came up with a way to shine the light of the gospel into this dark situation. They showed how this cultural practice that the Sawi had of offering a peace child was actually an analogy for the peace child Jesus. Explaining to them that anyone who accepts God's peace child given to mankind would never need to offer a human peace child ever again. Even into that war-torn, treacherous environment where people ate one another, even into that darkness, God's light shone. Don and Carol knew the Lord who was always with them, 
This was one of the truths that gave them the confidence to go out into the mission field to reach this people with the good news of Christ. And even into that darkness, thousands of miles away from home, the light of the gospel shone as thousands of Sowi came to know the good news of Jesus and are there to this day. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. The darkness is as light to you. As you go into this week, can I encourage you to dwell on these 12 verses that give us these two truths. God knows you fully and yet he still loves you. And wherever you go, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, he goes with you wanting to shine his light through you even into the darkest of circumstances. Because of Jesus, God is with us, he is for us. And so in the course of the next week, if you find yourself tempted to run and hide yourself from the Lord like Adam and Eve did in the garden because you are ashamed by what God knows of you or what sin you have done again, if you find yourself fearing that you've squandered all of God's grace, then turn and see him running with forgiveness in his gaze and know that because of Christ, you are still welcome in your Father's embrace. Let's pray and then we're going to sing. Father, it is incredible to us that we can read these verses and take comfort. You know everything about us and yet you still love us. And no matter how far we have run, no matter how many times, we can still run back to you. You can still be found. And so, Father, we pray this morning that these verses would be a comfort to us going into this week. And I pray that anyone who does not know the Lord Jesus as their Lord or as their Savior, that you, by your Spirit, might be working in their hearts even now. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.